Lucy, something is going to happen. What? What's going to happen? Something wonderful. Welcome to Stuff We've Seen. I'm your host, James Kent, and with me is Teal. How's it going, buddy? It's going good. Now, a couple of things. This is uh, mm-hmm. pretty exciting. Uh, today, a um, little interesting note in history. Oh. Uh, yeah. It's uh, the 22nd of March as, as we tape this. And what this day signifies is that me, myself, I have officially crossed the Wilford Brimley cocoon line. <laughs> you weren't expecting that, I guess. <laughs> that is right. I am I am now I am officially at the exact same age as Wilford Brimley was the day that cocoon was released in theaters in 1985. And isn't he playing a guy who's like 100 years old? Well, I think he's playing somebody that was a lot older than he was, which is part of the joke, which is what somebody started this on Twitter. Um, Right. And this person looks at different celebrities when they've crossed the the Brimley cocoon line and (laughs) it lets people know. And it's just mind blowing because of, I guess, how people used to look at a certain age. Well, yeah. I mean, he... It, it, they're in a retirement home, right? Well, yes. Like I said, it, what the funny joke is, is that Wilford Brimley, who looked like he was maybe 75 in that movie, yeah. was just uh, 50 rounding the corner towards 51. Yeah, that's uh, And well, and how old were like Don Amici well, and they Hugh were, Cronin? They were in their 70s, yes. Right. Uh, but uh, as a matter of fact, I wonder, I'm not sure, but I think it's either that he was either the same age or just slightly older than Brian Dennehy, who, who played, plays a young guy in the movie. He plays a young alienish guy. Yeah. So uh, I was really hoping uh, when I turned 50 and could not celebrate it because of the COVID pandemic, I thought, right. well, maybe by the time that the Brimley cocoon line rolls around, I could celebrate <laughs> that. Uh, and I was going to do a thing and have people in a party. But of course, I, we're still in the pandemic and i really didn't even i was going to get one of those hats that he wore uh in the movie like a oh like, yeah yeah like a sort of south florida hat the, and, the pork pie or whatever yeah, no it's not something a pork like pie. that yeah <laughs> a straw hat and, a straw uh, hat yeah 
like a straw fedora. And, I mean, <laughs> but I didn't even get that. So at least I'm marking the occasion with the podcast today that I have now, I, I don't know. It's a weird thing that I should be walking around in my retirement, I guess. Yes. you. It's time for you to retire. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, now I haven't seen that movie since it came out. In 1985? Yep. Wow. I guess you didn't yeah. make that much of an impression on you. <laughs> Well, no, I actually remember it quite well, but I, I didn't, I don't think I, I may have seen it on VHS like a year or two after that, but not, not since the eighties. So when it came out, uh, it came out around the exact same time as back to the future. Yeah, that's right. And my movie buddy, uh, from high school, or I guess it was the summer between junior high and high school, okay. uh, it was the summer of 85 for me. And we had junior high. Uh, which was seven, eight, nine at the time. Now they don't do that mostly. It's middle no, school. They don't. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this was between ninth and tenth grade, and my movie going buddy uh, Robert and I, uh, somebody, either his parents or my parents, dropped us off to the big showcase uh, cinema to see Back to the Future, right? Opening night. We get there, and it was sold out. <laughs> <laughs> Everything there was sold out. Uh, the only movie we could get tickets to, and at the time, I guess as a teenager, I didn't want to go at a night where I guess some teenage girl could see me getting right. tickets to the Goonies, which we could have gone to. And so <laughs> I ended up seeing it later that summer, like by myself in the afternoon where no teenage girls were probably going to spy me <laughs> watching the Goonies. But uh, we didn't want to see that. And so we were discouraged because now we had nowhere to go. Like, the, Right. We, yeah. We no, you're, you're, you're cast out on the street with no home. Home, no entertainment. No, but don't worry, because my mom came to the rescue. She picked <laughs> us up. And then, even though we were sad that we couldn't see Back to the Future, we went over to the Burlington Mall Theater, and the two of us were able to get tickets to see Cocoon. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I, we were delighted by it. We thought it was really good. I enjoyed it. Oh, me too. I, I remember I, I, I saw it with my parents. They, you know, it's just like a family night out at the movies. And, uh, and I loved it. I did too. And the crowd loved it. And I said, boy, that Ron Howard, he's going to be a great filmmaker. <laughs> he's never going to make a movie like Hillbilly Elegy or anything like that. Right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he was back in the days where he could do no wrong. That guy. He, he did some he did some good stuff. He did. And a matter of fact, uh, while some speculated that maybe Cocoon would get nominated for uh, some Oscars, and it did, it just didn't get nominated for Best Picture, he was, Ron Howard, uh, nominated for a DGA uh, for that movie. Oh, that's right. So I think a lot of okay. people speculated that, that it would also make it into the Best Picture and Director. Did not, and neither did the biggest hit of that year, Back to the Future, um, which I also saw... A few days later, by myself, in a theater in the afternoon where no teenage girls can spot me, <laughs> seeing it by myself. Um, and I, I, saw, it like I, I definitely saw Goonies by myself in a, in a matinee with no, nobody around to witness the fact that I had seen it. So sometimes I still <laughs> deny having seen it because nobody can really prove that I did. Well, when I saw Goonies, I would have just turned 15. And it's weird. It's like that thing where you're not supposed to play with Star Wars figures, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Got to hide my Yoda, Yoda hut. Um, <laughs> 
somewhere where nobody, you know, no teenage girls going to come over and see me. Uh, but it's the same thing with Goonies is that it was like, I, I had a guy, you know, I was maybe a little too old, but I loved it still. And in, 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 in that it made me feel that, oh, I wish I could have like a, a little adventure <laughs> and find like a pirate ship in a cave or something. <laughs> Do you remember uh, Monster Squad? Yeah, I didn't like the Monster Squad. That was maybe where I was too old. <laughs> that was exactly my point. I, I I saw it because of the effects. Ah, okay. Uh, you know, and but I was a little too old. It was like a little bit too much of a kiddie movie. I, I didn't like it that much. But it was definitely sort of in that category of like just I still wanted the kid kind of movie, but I'm a little too old for it. Yeah, and then of course that summer, I remember that summer very well because. Again, my friend uh, Robert, uh, which is his last name was Otis, and we just used to call him Otis. I, I, I don't think I ever called him Robert or Robert Bobby. I used to call him Otis. Uh, he and I would go to the movies all the time. So he was my movie buddy. He was your movie buddy. And that's when I really started discovering the Somerville Theater that I always, always talk about on the show. Oh, yeah, you always talk about it. Yeah. They didn't have um, new releases at that time. They were just one big movie house, and they showed retro films and during this summer they would show five movies a day okay five different movies five different movies all continuous you could go oh wow and see them all for one price and he and i i I, it feels like i went every day to see five movies but it was maybe only like four or five times but that's still like 20 movies yeah that's and you'd go for the whole day yeah my mom would drop us off and she would first take us to this convenience store that sold subs and we got like you know i got like this big roast beef sub and he was and then we get a candy (laughs) and we'd bring them they they didn't care and we would bring those in so we had something to eat and we would just eat and snack and watch all these movies. And then she'd pick us up at the end of the night. Perfect day. Yeah. Oh, it was awesome. And then, of course, by the end of the, the, end of the, the night, by the fifth movie, we were a little punchy. And we would <laughs> sort of venture from the downstairs to the upstairs, which had a very huge balcony. And we'd go way, 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 way back to the back row where the projector <laughs> was and you can almost like i feel like almost was, hear the projector flickering away well no you definitely could hear the projector flicking away but what you what was so far away from where the screen was that sometimes it took a second for the sound <laughs> to reach you you know it was like that <laughs> weird thing um and we would find ourselves mystery science theatering usually yes. the last movie because we were just so punchy yeah absolutely i i, I definitely I think I've told, I talked about this on the show before, but uh, me and a couple of friends, we were in New Hampshire. We would drive to Boston. Yeah, yes. And we'd see, you know, three or four movies in a day at different theaters. We'd sort of run between them. Well, because you make that trip, you got to get the most out of it. You make the trip. You, we'd get up early. We'd get there for the first matinee and, uh, you know, just go to movies all day. And yes, definitely buy the last movie. I, I remember a few times just sitting in the theater. Oh man, there was one uh, Kathleen Turner movie. Body Heat. No, no, that oh, was a good one. This was okay. not a good one. It was called Vi Warchowski. Oh geez, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that was one where I think we were the only people in the theater, and we just we were punchy. We were in hysterics. We were ripping the movie apart. 
So that was, you know, there would always be a movie like that. And then sometimes you'd get, you know, a surprise that you thought, whoa, I remember uh, one of the big surprises on one of those trips was uh, Miracle Mile. Oh, oh yes. And of course, we one of our earliest shows, we talked about Miracle Mile. And that's uh, something that when we were, I think is when we were living together. Yeah. Uh, you know, you would sometimes describe movies, movies I'd never heard of. And you described this movie and it almost didn't seem real until I found yeah. it and watched it. But uh, you always had that ability. You'd talk about something and just the way you would deliver your description. <laughs> it didn't sound like you were telling the truth. And yet more more often than not, you were telling the truth. And there was this weird movie with Anthony Edwards and Denise Crosby. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> and of course, you know, why are we bringing all of these things up? Why are we reminiscing, right? This is what we used yeah. to kind of do on our early episodes of the podcast. A long time ago. Yeah. We kind of like, I don't know how to say we phased it out, but maybe we went through all the stories. Um, I think that's part of it. it was, we kind of <laughs> exhausted ourselves on reminiscing. And well, and then, you know, there's new movies we want to watch. And Yeah. I and mean, we're always making discoveries. And that's where whenever you start a podcast, you kind of, you start to create a, a sort of a format, I guess. And we, yeah, started we never off, did that. Well, we had to start off with like, <laughs> we had to start off with like getting some experiences out. We talk about film experiences, yes. how, why, why are films and the film going, uh, you know, important to us. And of course we didn't expect that for now a year, we would have to kind of switch gears a little bit because yeah. we wouldn't have movies to go see in the theater. Yeah, or uh, or even just that much new stuff. Yeah, it's been a struggle. Like, I mean, the new stuff comes out, but it's like the stuff that, again, you'd normally ignore. Exactly. <laughs> and now you're forced to watch it on Netflix because <laughs> Netflix movies, man. But yes, yeah, so much of these, so many of these movies, I would have not seen in a regular year. This is true. And so, again, why we're bringing this up is because out of this two-plus-year journey, we have reached our own sort of Brimley cocoon line. <laughs> we crossed 100 we crossed episodes. crossed the Rubicon. Yeah, 100 episodes. And, and it's not unofficially we've already crossed it, but uh, one of those episodes was me just kind of doing – a experience about seeing uh, Lawrence of Arabia in 70 millimeter. Oh yeah. That was, and that was pretty short, right? It was short and it was kind of, uh, it was pre-taped in a sense, like it wasn't an episode with you and I. Right. And it was just an extra because we weren't going to be able to do an episode. So for you're one. not really counting that one. I don't count that. No, it's not okay, official. Okay. So this is our officially 100th episode. Yeah. And if you go, well, if you go on, some people like uh, Bill from Queens congratulated us early. <laughs> oh, okay. Because it will say like we are already at 100 or 101 right. episodes because when you sign up with the server that we use podbean they somehow like the way they numer numerically do it they add like an episode number that didn't didn't actually exist that's really strange it and is creepy yeah so trust us because i do every <laughs> i do the editing very well this is the official 100th episode so that means now, from now on on the show, we can just reminisce about the show. We'll reminisce about, yes, we started <laughs> off with the Peter Himes. We used to talk about him all the time. The first couple episodes, we love talking about Peter Himes, and I think about him every now and then. I, I would love to. I mean, I heard he's, you know, he's out there somewhere. I'd love to have him on the podcast. I'm not sure he's ever heard our podcast, but. <laughs> <laughs> he may be one of our biggest fans, in he, which he case. He might be, uh, you know, I mean, if uh, Craig Watson had ever done a movie with uh, Peter Himes, I would send him an email and say, listen, you know, <laughs> Peter Himes, we got to get him on the show because uh, he did a lot of 80s movies. Yeah. And some pretty good ones. 
He did. Yeah. I mean, well, and again, when we were kids, it's weird that uh, and I'll say this for any like you know, filmmakers, actors, actresses, whatever that are out there, that when you're a film fan and you grow up, that when movies came out, geeks like you and I, we looked at who directed the movie. Remember Premiere Magazine? Is that still around? It is. That was the late 80s it came out. Yeah. Yeah, it was the late 80s. and I, But I remember reading it. Uh, you know, they'd have like, here's the spring preview. Right. And I would look, I'd flip through it and I would just look at the directors. Yeah, me too. Uh, and just hoping that there was some director I knew who had something cool coming out. But yeah, the film geeks all about the director in a way. And then later on, I started getting more into uh, writers and cinematographers and, you know, actors, of course, but that goes without saying. Oh, I thought you were about to say the set decorators well <laughs> you know it's funny i'm gonna can i just jump in on that because i wasn't expecting to say that you know the the guy who did the art direction for in the soup yes he a was amazing but he went on to like a huge career yes he did i think he's actually won uh got oscar nominations too i think i think he did maybe for a wes anderson movie was it mark friedberg or mark friedberg yes yeah he um he did some todd haynes stuff he was amazing he did uh, far from heaven which is fantastic oh you know what his last movie was what joker he did the production design in Joker. Yes. This guy is so meticulous. He, he knows yes. how to like, if you say, I want to do something in a certain period, he will go to extreme levels of detail. Well, and he knows how to tell a story with those details. Like it really fills in. I remember just him really filling in the character uh, and working with Steve Buscemi on In the Soup to sort of make the uh, his apartment look like his character and you know what's amazing this i mean there was zero budget on that movie and he yes. made it feel like i mean he he did what he could do with the set yeah. it's, it's pretty crazy so uh you know i was joking about sector decorators but you learn a lot from a guy like him uh who's in, just in so the fantastic. soup was one of his first movies i know and he went like so that was the same thing with uh you know with the uh, walkin and jaffe right they yeah. the casting directors and then they hit the big time they did the casting for the sopranos yeah which uh has great casting yeah um you know so it's funny how we you know we, we're not big film in the business ourselves but we we've intersected with some folks that no, went on mark friedberg i mean looking at looking at his filmography it's, it's like, insane it's insane but it's also like this would be worth watching like it would be worth doing an episode on mark friedberg did he did he do some set stuff for anderson oh yeah yeah he did darjeeling limited oh my god he did steve zissou darjeeling limited is a movie that a lot of people like to pick as, oh, I didn't like, that's the one Wes Anderson movie. Oh, really? I'm a big fan of Darjeeling Limited, actually. Uh, me too. I like it quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think there's a lot going on in that. Um, and I don't know if it helped that when I got to see it, I got a special uh, sneak screening. Uh, my wife and I had just recently settled in uh, Arizona at the time. And okay. that, that fall, we got a screening to see it and they showed it with the little movie the short film, the prologue okay. film that goes along yes, with yes. it. Yes, yes, yeah. What was that called? Something Hotel. Yeah, with Natalie uh, Portman. With Natalie in Portman. It. Yeah. yeah, and and it was just it was like a nice little piece uh, to go along with that movie. So I don't know. I really enjoyed the experience um, of seeing that. Uh, so I, I, you know, I always appreciate most of his films. I wasn't a big fan of Isle of Dogs, but 
I did not see that one. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'll give it another chance someday, but... Uh, it's animated, right? Yeah, but I loved Fantastic Mr. Fox. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, you know. So, you know, it's funny. Go, but So, but going back to that, uh, <laughs> the director's thing, when you said look at it. Yeah. I, got, I guess I got a question for you as to when do you feel the director of the film became important for you? Like that, that the name of the director meant something to you. It made a connection. They somehow are like the author of the film or that somehow the director has something to do with why this film is good. Okay. Well, I think, unfortunately, my generation has two very obvious answers. Well, let me guess. One would be Spielberg, right? Yes. Okay. Well, what would the other one be? Lucas. Okay. Interesting. Um, but definitely Spielberg was... Yeah, I mean, I, I think Spielberg was a lot of people's sort of first director awareness in our generation, uh, just because he was such a figure and also had his name above the title. Yeah, but well, but you know what's interesting is that obviously Jaws. I guess I was a little too young. Like, right. Even when I was aware of Jaws, I wasn't really aware that Spielberg made it. I mean, for me, it was really probably Raiders of the Lost Ark. So, okay. So that's, that would be the one as far as Spielberg goes, because I'd seen other Spielberg movies, but I didn't know the name. I wasn't even looking at the credits when I would say saw Close Encounters. And then when Indiana Jones, and we we talked about this on the early show too, is that when I went to see the film, I didn't even want to, it was a sneak preview and I didn't even want to go. I just wanted to get out of going to my sister's softball game. (laughs) And it was, I mean, when that movie was over, I knew who Spielberg was. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that movie at least a dozen times in the theater. But Spielberg was an anomaly in that like, oh yeah, Spielberg, he makes great movies and I was looking forward to it. But I would say for me, when the when I really started paying attention to who directed the movie, where that became the thing I was going to look at every time, if I liked the film, I wanted to know who directed it. It came when I was 14 and my buddies, uh, that kid Otis and this other kid Glenn yeah. and I, we rented A Clockwork Orange. Okay. See, Kubrick was probably n- next on my list of people that I really noticed. Because after that film was over... Um, I wouldn't say I enjoyed watching it. Like it was so complex and I had <laughs> right, so many it, thoughts it, that afterwards I said, you know, the director of this movie is the reason why this film is different than any other film I've watched. Right. Had you seen other Kubrick films at that point? Well, I'd seen The Shining, but I didn't know Kubrick directed okay. it. I had no idea that Kubrick directed it at the I time. I had seen 2001. I had not seen 2001. And unfortunately, I saw it on a horrible pan and scan VHS. The first time I saw it, 2001. (laughs) And like, I didn't understand. Like, I thought it was some kind of weird camera technique, that robotic moving to the left and moving to the right. And I thought it was so odd because I didn't quite understand that what I was watching on TV wasn't the full picture. You know what I mean? Well, no. Why would you understand that? Well, I mean, it's, you know, it took me, it was a journey to understanding that. But I didn't, but then it made sense as to why whenever I got a chance to see some of these same films uh, in the theater, I'm like, my God, it was so much better. Yep. So much. Yeah. And yeah, the first time I saw 2001 uh, in the theater was just a, yeah, transformative experience. But I I had, I've told you about these, uh, these friends I had, Dale and uh, Zach, they were brothers and their parents would sometimes take us to the movies. 
And I, I, I've told you about this before. They would drop us off at the college theater. Yeah. So, okay. These are the kids that you go to the college theater with. I'd go to the college theater with them. And uh, that was the first time I saw The Shining was in the, at the college theater. And I was completely blown away by it. And I think that was sort of uh, not long after that, I saw Clockwork Orange. So, yeah, Kubrick definitely got on my list. Uh, one of one of the first people on my list, definitely. And then, you know, there were other people like Brian De Palma I became highly aware of. That when we did that those episodes yeah. is that they their style unmistakable. So you almost had that expectation going in when 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 you knew that one of their films were coming out. You'd only get disappointed. Like, wait a minute, but it's a De Palma movie. It's supposed to be good, or a Spielberg exactly. movie. You're supposed to be good, and even sometimes that betrayed you because you might be like, well, that wasn't that good, but it was Spielberg. But it know? was Spielberg, and actually, no, the movie is kind of terrible. I think I had that happen with Empire of the Sun. I was so excited. I was like, oh, Spielberg's oh. doing this move. It's going to be epic. And I, I was left feeling a little bit bored by the movie and just removed from it. Have you seen it since then? I have not seen it in many years. Uh, okay. So it's definitely maybe a time for a reevaluation potentially, but I don't think it's going to change the fact that it's very slow. It is very slow, but I... The film has grown on me I've, since I first saw it in the 80s or whenever it first came out, 87. I had a question that I, I told you in advance of what the yes. question was going to be, but I'm going to ask you now, and I don't know if you have an answer for it, but I wanted to know in your, in your history of watching movies, is there a film that when you first saw the film, you didn't like it? For whatever the reason, mm -hmm. you just didn't think it was a good movie. But then whether it was, you know, maybe you saw it again that year or maybe years later or just when you were older, you watched the film and you reevaluated it, finding new things about it or finally getting what all the critics, let's say, thought about it or a movie that everybody thought it was bad. And then suddenly you reevaluated <laughs> and said, no, this thing is really good. So I've got two movies that I thought were terrible the first time I saw them. Okay. And I, and I, <laughs> <laughs> the reason I thought they were terrible is because I thought, and this was, you know, me as a teenager uh, being pretentious is that I thought they were bad because they were pretentious. Interesting. And so I was like, I am annoyed by these artsy movies that act like they uh, are really about something deep. And in fact, they're just, you know, a, a bunch of uh, pretentious gobbledygook. Channeling your inner Pauline Kale. Yeah. And so there, there was this movie that came out. Uh, I didn't see it in the theater, but everyone, I worked at the video store and everyone there loved it and all the critics loved it. And I watched it and I was like, this is the most pretentious piece of garbage I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> I can't wait for this. People watch this just to make themselves feel smart. And, <laughs> <laughs> and movies like this are, are just designed for like uh, college students to write papers about. And there's, yeah. <laughs> okay. What is it? <laughs> Blue Velvet. You didn't like it. No. No, no, no. Interesting. I, I hated it. I didn't think I knew you hated it, but I knew for years you were not a big Lynch fan, though Though years later you've become somewhat of a Lynch fan. Well, and it, no, and I've become a huge Blue Velvet fan. I love Blue Velvet, but my first reaction to it was just incredibly negative. And 
then I, you know, I saw it maybe like 10 years after that. And from the first shot, I was just thinking, this is amazing and visionary. <laughs> well, there is something about that in, that you and I seeing it when we're teenagers, there, there is some appreciation that I don't think we understood what he was commenting on. Exactly. And yeah. so I, I liked the film a lot at first viewing, even though it really disturbed me. And I think we even mm -hmm. talked about that, but I had a second viewing of it when I was in my freshman year of college at USC, they had a huge uh, cinema there on campus that they yeah. had as a working classroom as well. And I mean, this place could show 70 millimeter movies oh, yeah, yeah. and, and it had, uh, it was one of the first theaters in the country that had THX because Lucas was affiliated with USC. He had it actually installed there. <laughs> um, you know, so this was like state of the art for 1988. Yeah. And so one of the classes that I, you could drop in as long as there was space, you could drop in in any class. I mean, they had 400 seats. Right. And so as you knew what the schedule was in the movies, you could just show up. So I, I went to tons of movies and you just had to sit through the class part too. Right. And this was, I think on contemporary film and the guy, his students had picked blue velvet. And it's funny now because, the movie's over 30 years old but right. think about it when it's a fairly new movie and he oh, yeah. as a as the teacher was resisting that is like oh i don't know why we'd be showing this film yeah it just came out a few years ago and and watching that with a more of an in-tuned audience and a few years later also a few years later in both my uh education experience and just my you know growing up now i'm 18 right. I, I was like, I saw the dark humor in it in a way that I didn't quite the first time. I didn't get any of the humor. I thought every, everything just ran, rang false to me and like self-indulgent. And yeah, I, I just, I was so pretentious that I didn't like things that were pretentious. I actually think I knew that about you. Anything that you were, well, you're being, you're always more of a critic. I'm more of a film goer. So, you know, and that's not bad. It just means that when right. you go into a movie, you're going to, you're going to be like, okay, well, I need to critique this film a little bit. Right. It's harder to maybe just sit back and purely enjoy it because you're there doing your, 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 you know, your critic, you're being. I'm doing my critic thing. So what was the second movie? Uh, the second movie is Barton Fink. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I've only watched it from beginning to end once in the theater. I saw it in the theater. Yep. Did not like it. I didn't really like it that much either. Very depressing. I've seen it twice since then. It's still depressing. Yes. I don't love it, but I like it. I mean, I really hated it. <laughs> and like to the point where I thought I didn't like the Coen brothers. Yeah, you are. You definitely were critical of them too. I was very critical. I didn't like Miller's Crossing the first time I saw it. Well, it's funny now. I don't want to break in, but you know, I prepared a movie of reevaluation, uh -huh. <laughs> and I again, we did not plan this. However, the film, one of my biggest reevaluations of all time, is Miller's Crossing. I kind of suspected it because we <laughs> saw it together, didn't we? So we. Uh, there was this thing where we lived together that my junior year of college, and we were very excited about two films that fall. One was Goodfellas, yes. and the other was Miller's Crossing. Yeah, two gangster films. And but for some reason, I mean, there was like the preview, the trailer was awesome for Miller's Crossing. Yes, there was a lot of uh, anticipation, and the movie that at the time we were most looking forward to was Miller's Crossing. And yes. that came out first. And it only was like in a couple theaters to start in New York. And we went with our good pal, John Garofalo. Mm -hmm. We went up, took the 
subway uptown. I don't know even know what theater it was playing in. It was yeah, not playing at the Zigfield. It was playing at another theater. No, that but was it was up somewhere there. uptown. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a big theater, and we we were up there early. We had to wait to get in. Uh, like, yeah. we had to go out and like hang out for like at a coffee shop or something. And so we finally go in. And I actually think that the sound wasn't the best at that theater. It was like I remember it was a little bit echoey and hard to hear. But you know, we walked out, and you really hated it. I really yes. And I just was like left very flat. I was like. Oh man, I was expecting like a big gangster movie and it wasn't right. really about that. Um, and then of course, you know, a few weeks later we saw what I considered a masterpiece with Goodfellas and that- Which is a masterpiece and is undeniably a classic at this point. And gave, gave me everything I wanted. That was such a great experience seeing that at midnight with you and uh, an ex-girlfriend of yours. Yep. And that was just so fantastic. But- a few years later, when I graduated college and I was living... Wait, before we get to that, what did you not like about Miller's Crossing? Um, well, I mean, again, it just it didn't meet up to my expectations. Okay. I thought the story was kind of weak. And again, because it was a little hard to hear and maybe with the pattern of the dialogue, yeah. uh, it was a hard time following exactly what was going on with like the boxing plot and right. didn't quite okay. see how it was all fitting together. And... So at the end, it was just like, wow, that was just a weak movie. Yeah. So then a few years later, I'm in California um, where I lived just for maybe about like 13 months, 14 months after I got out of college, got out of that place pretty quick. And you were living out there for a short period of time. Yeah. But after like June, you left. I think that's true. You yeah. left. That summer when I was working at Ben & Jerry's, a whole bunch of us, uh, there was a double feature that was going to be playing at the New Beverly. You know, oh, yeah. Everybody knows the New Beverly now because it's Tarantino's uh, theater there. But it, Right. But they didn't – at the time, it was just the New Beverly. It was just a place where he probably hung out at a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, because it was, it was one of the great revival theaters in, in L.A. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to disappoint people for, who are going to make the, <laughs> the pilgrimage there, but it's a terrible theater. I mean, it's just like this you – know, it's like a hole in the wall. It's not like a great screen or great sound or any Is of that stuff. Is it better now that Tarantino – I haven't been. I mean, I'm okay. – how much better can it be, though? I mean – Well, they could – could have, you know, put in comfortable seats. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> Those seat, the seats were terrible. But I mean, I think it's what you appreciated about a place like that is that thank God it existed, right? Yes. So you could see movies that aren't in theaters anymore and revivals. And one of the things that they were really good at is curation. Yes. And putting good double features together. Um, and I saw a lot of double features when I lived that year uh, at the New Beverly. And I saw... Uh, so I said a bunch of us were somehow were able to get the night off of work at Ben and Jerry's so that we could go and see a double feature of Miller's Crossing, which was first and The Godfather. Okay. <laughs> and so there was a bunch of us. And I remember being excited to see The Godfather on the big screen because I don't think at the time I'd seen The Godfather on the big screen. And now I've seen it a bunch of times. But uh, You have on the big screen? Uh-huh. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I said at least at least three or four times. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, but this was the first, so I was very excited about that. You know, when you've only seen something on the tiny TV. Yeah. Um, so the, again, there was no widescreen TV. That was another like one that. I saw for the first time on VHS. Well, that wasn't even pan and scan. I mean, it was more of a classic aspect ratio anyway. And it was no, that's true. Full camera, yeah. negative and stuff. So that really didn't suffer that bad. Uh, but that's how you saw it on a tiny little tube TV. <laughs> So I was excited about that, but not so excited about Miller's Crossing. Right. And so it starts, and A, you could hear everything perfectly, right? Um, so <laughs> that, that helps. That was good. But 
there was something I'm instantly was absorbed and really paying attention to what was going on on screen. And at some point, I'm sitting there, you know, almost like feeling like I'm by myself, even though I'm surrounded by a bunch of kids. And in the summertime, there were like college kids from right. that were hanging out for the summer that were working at Ben and Jerry's, and they were going back to whatever state they lived in after the summer. And so I was just kind of thinking, boy. I think this movie's kind of a masterpiece. <laughs> this is amazing. My jaw was dropping. And then when the movie was over, we were all started to talk about it. And just everybody was just floored by the movie. And there was this girl that was working there just for the summer, so a college student. And she had such an interesting take huh. on the film that she felt that it was really about – um, this male camaraderie and masculinity and actual male like homosexual uh, overtones throughout the whole film oh, and that interesting. and that it was really about like sexual non-sexual love for other men and fascinating and there was a whole take that she had on it and it really was there was like you know there was like all this loyalty and sort of like I don't know bromance but then there was also very sly i think on the cohen brothers because the the main gangster this guy was a johnny casper or whatever um, right. he has his henchman the dane but the dane was in love with his boss in a oh, sense okay. and then you had john Totoro's character who was pretty clearly was gay and then there was also um gabriel gabriel Byrne. Byrne. he had his own sort of love for his boss. Um, and so it was this very interesting story about how men love each other. Right. Um, and their loyalty. Uh, and it was just a very interesting film that went way beyond the sort of gangster facade of what it was supposed to be about, at least what I thought the right, first time right, I right. watched it. And so I just appreciated the movie so much. <laughs> so I have not seen it a second time. Wow. I've seen it several times since. So I feel like I need to watch it again. Maybe. I mean, you know, I, I think the Coen brothers have an interesting history. I mean, they've, they've done some amazing work and then they've had some films that I wasn't a big fan of. Um, but I always know that they always seem to bounce back with something interesting. Well, you know what movie I didn't like when I first watched it? But again, a reevaluation of it is so much better. It's actually really a good movie is Burn After Reading. Yes. Burn After Reading is pretty great. Yeah. I haven't finished watching it, but uh, I, I've been re-watching uh, Inside Llewellyn Davis. So that's a movie that you've been trying to get me to watch for a while. Uh, yes, but, you know, just like Roma, it's kind of hopeless <laughs> at this point. No, nope. just... I watched it yesterday. Oh, so you watched it? Yes. Oh, I, I did <laughs> I did say maybe you could watch some movies that, you know, for our 100th anniversary there. But uh, yep, you, gave me, you gave me a couple of movies. But I didn't that... know if you even watched any. I did. I watched Inside Lou and De Davis. Okay. So I guess what is your thoughts on that? Well, I realized that I'd been mispronouncing the name the whole time. It's Llewellyn, right? No, it's Lewin. Oh, Lewin. Sorry. See, I already mispronounced it. And See, it I always thought it was Llewellyn, but it's not. It's Lewin. Lewin. <laughs> so that, I figured that out pretty quickly. I had some odd expectations for this movie and- uh, it's not whatever you thought it was going to be about. That's for sure. It's definitely not whatever I thought it was going to be about. And I, I really enjoyed it when I, I think I was thinking about sort of the Coen brothers 
early on, there was sort of a, uh, they did a lot of funny stuff with the camera early on. Yeah. And maybe that was, well, their youthfulness and also working with Barry Sonnenfeld and then. Yeah. And so there was a certain, like even in Barton Fink, but definitely Blood Simple and Raising Arizona had that uh, Hudsucker proxy. There's sort of a cartoony aspect to it. Yeah. And inside Lewin Davis, none of that. No, but the cinematography by uh, Bruno Dabanel, I think, is amazing. Amazing cinematography, but they're not as their voice is not as intrusive uh, or overpowering as it was in their earlier films. No, as a matter of fact, I would say that if you didn't know that the Coen Brothers made that movie, you would be like, "Who made this movie?" I think that's true. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily, although <laughs> it does have the story sort of works in the, I remember reading an interview with the Coen brothers, like in the nineties and they said something like where, whenever we get stuck on a story, we just say, what's the strangest thing that could happen next. <laughs> and so they sort of throw these wrenches in it. And this movie has a bunch of those sort of weird story twist. But they're not like a plot twist, but they alter the one, the big one I'm thinking of. Well, there's two. There's the cat. Love the cat, which they, they actually used a, a sort of a MacGuffin because they like needed something. Right. Oh, it's totally a MacGuffin and it's there just to kind of be a, a plot thing, but it works so well and it's uh, works so well with his character. Well, I think and they discovered that it actually added a dimension to the story that they weren't counting on when they first started to write it. Yeah, they were like, let's just throw in a cat. And then it, oh, it actually ends up being really kind of meaningful. And uh, and then the other one I'm thinking of is when uh, he's on his way to Chicago and they get pulled over or they, they're pulled over on the side of the road and the cop comes. And <laughs> and I'm just like, okay, they're going to get searched. They're going to find out that John Goodman's character has heroin. And <laughs> no, the cop just takes the driver and leaves. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> locks the driver in the back of his car and leaves. And Lewin just goes, just gets out of the car, leaves the cat there and starts hitchhiking. And it, it was such an unexpected way for the scene to work. It, it, it was not what the setup of the scene had lead me to, led me to believe it would be. And so the whole, uh, that's sort of an example of what the whole movie is doing is kind of these surprising things. And then, you know, when he gets to Chicago and he plays for the guy in the club, and it's this, and it's kind of amazing. He does this great song and he puts so much of his soul into it. And then the guy's like, yeah, you're okay, I guess. Okay. Well, so that's really what, that was amazing. And uh, first of all, his performance, right? His, Oscar Isaac okay. is so, so fantastic. So I got, I got 20 minutes into this movie and I was like, who, where do I know this actor Oh, it's Oscar from? Isaac. <laughs> well now, yes, I know, but. Poe Dameron, man. Uh, I, uh, yeah. No, I had, I had to look it up actually. And then it was like, oh, it's Poe, of course. Yeah. Uh, but he does all his own singing in that movie. Yes. Well, he was in a band before he started acting. It, it's such a, I mean, unfortunately, right? It, it, it's such a great performance that it's so good. It's the classic performance that never gets nominated for an Oscar because it's too good. Because it's too good because you just believe, oh, this is the guy and there's not really any acting going on. Now, what I loved about the movie, what tied it all for me when I watched this film and turned it from a really good movie to what I consider kind of a masterwork is the ending of that movie mm -hmm. blew me away because the whole time I'm going along I'm thinking it's one timeline. Right. And then when you discover that the beginning of the film is the end of the film, in a sense, 
what you realize is everything that this now character, you're like reflecting back on his whole yeah. journey. And you realize, because he had to come to the crossroads, because when you hear Dylan, you realize everything has changed. Yes. And that he just isn't going to be it. Right. And and that he's not, yeah, he's, when you hear Dylan, you go, oh my God, that that's the future. Yeah, so that the way that this all went around, I, I just thought it was such a fantastic way to tell the story. It's so much interesting stuff. Yeah, it all comes around. His freak out at the end where he's like, I hate folk music is <laughs> so good. Because What's amazing is that the people who played right before his meltdown, Yeah, I'm watching them and I'm going, man, these guys kind of suck. And uh, no wonder Dylan went electric. <laughs> And then, like, two minutes later, he's like, I hate folk music. <laughs> well, then you realize, like, at the beginning, like, the you know, at the beginning of the movie, he gets, like, punched. Yes. And you don't, you know, you don't know why. And then, of course, at the end, now you now you see the stuff that led up to him getting punched. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yet, it's a really weird thing because the, the design of the movie is so incredible that you then could start up and watch the movie like it's almost like in a big loop. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, I just, so great. <laughs> Another amazing thing about it is uh he, he goes the, the middle section of the movie is this trip to chicago and it feels like a big epic adventure and then he comes back to new york and he asks this woman something and she says no that's happening saturday and he's like oh i feel like i've been gone for a really long time but it was only a couple of days <laughs> yeah. and and it was amazing because i had had the exactly the same experience i was like he's been gone for weeks and it was like three days he was gone. You know, you had mentioned this movie as uh, as a music biopic. Well, it's sort of very, it has its roots in a real guy. But, right, right, but right. But, but in Coen Brother fashion, they just use something for inspiration and then they just create their own story. Yeah. and But it did make me wonder, like, it would be interesting to see a biopic about somebody who doesn't really succeed. You know, because well, this, this is it. <laughs> well, it is. But but this whole movie takes place in a week. I know. And that's what's amazing. You know, usually these biopics take place over years and they hit all the key events in the person's life. But the, this is really much more of a character study over in, in a small period of time. It's just really interesting way to do it. It ticked another box for me is that whenever you're setting a movie in like the the fifties or the sixties, I always, I, it, it, something has to pass a believability test. And yes, for me, this passes the believability test. Oh, without question. Now it doesn't look like the way films in the fifties or sixties shot or, but it felt like I, I, I just, it felt so authentic. Yeah. And part of that is, is what I was talking about earlier is sort of the hands-off directorial approach. A light touch with the directorial approach, the incredibly naturalistic cinematography. Well, I mean, you know, the Coen brothers, it's it's interesting, right? They've had this long working relationship with Roger Deakins. So you're always yeah. in amazing hands. However, when Deakins isn't available, they don't just get anybody. They got right. <laughs> Emmanuel Lebieski, and now they get Bruno Dabanel. And interestingly, the only nomination that Inside Lewin Davis got from the Academy was Bruno Dabanel's cinematography. That's interesting. Yeah. 
and, and you know, and the movie's got Carrie Mulligan in it. Yeah. And of course it has, this is one of your, the reasons why you resisted it for so long is it has Adam Driver in a brief role. But I will say this is the best I have ever seen Adam Driver in a movie. It's great. His character great. It's a great character. He plays it well. I really liked him. That scene is really funny, by the way. Which one? You know, the scene where they're doing the uh, Spaceman oh. song. Oh, where they're doing <laughs> Please, Mr. Kennedy. Yeah. yeah. And just the way Driver's doing all these warm-ups and, you know, it's just really funny. Um, well, I'm glad you appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. I totally appreciate it. I'm glad I watched it. It's fun to, you know, the, these sort of uh, holes in my viewing history. It's fun to fill them in sometimes. Well, I mean, I usually, if there's a movie I want you to see, it's not because I think you're going to hate it. <laughs> and, you know, I don't know if you're going to love it, but I mean, I usually think that there's a reason why you should see it. Um, and, uh, you know, it's harder, of course, for you to find something for me because. You see everything. Well, anytime you tell me to see something, I, I actually search it out and see it. I don't just. In instantly. I yeah. Don't dismiss it. <laughs> I wait years. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there is one film that we've talked about very briefly, at least at one episode or another. Yeah. And. I was very excited to watch it when I could. I mean, it was like one of these, this was going to, you have hard missions to solve. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a hard one to find. You always talked about how the extended five hour cut of Wim Vendor's uh, Until the End of the World. Yeah. Uh, which he would kind of like, it was in theaters sometimes where he, you know, he'd bring it to festivals and. Yeah. The rights issue was that it is that it could only be shown in America if he was at the screening and eventually by the way they worked that through yes they did um, and then they were finally got like a 4k restoration and it was played at like film forum and then criterion picked it up and they were releasing it um on blu-ray yeah but they also put it like about a month later they put it on their site which they've kept by the way it's been up there for a year nice on the criterion channel and i just couldn't wait to to watch this thing because you told me about it and my wife and i started watching it uh, before the pandemic even broke it was like in oh, january of 2020 yeah. um and then we i don't know you know it's just like we it's a five-hour movie you got to watch it in installments it, right it, and it's and it's mm, slow at times it can be yes uh so so we were watching it and then she like you know we just get i would have watched the whole thing but she was you know wanted to watch right. it and you got busy and then then we went away and then suddenly the pandemic and then suddenly when you have your own pandemic happening and and you know <laughs> very dystopian you, you don't feel like watching necessarily uh movies about potentially the end of the world uh right. so uh, the other day i was looking for something to watch and I saw that I was like, oh, you know, I, I only saw the first like two hours of the movie. I kind of would right. like to watch the last two and a half or, or almost three. So I, uh, I've seen the first two and a half hours. I needed to go okay. another two and, and a half it, hours. Almost. Is, is it in sections? No, no, no. Okay. Because at one point when I saw it, it was in sections. It was called the trilogy cut. I've heard about that because uh, yeah, multiple cuts of this, but no, it's, it was five hour movie okay. um, or almost five hours, four hours and 47 minutes, I think. And, you know, it, it, when I watched it, like almost 30 years later, I first saw this film in 1992 and in the two hour version in the two hour and 40 minute version. Yes. Uh, it was playing, uh, strangely enough, I went back to California after I got out of NYU and I was hanging out with this, uh, now he's not a friend of mine anymore, but this friend, <laughs> he 
stayed at USC and he had graduated and they were showing a summer screening at that theater on campus mm. of Until the End of the World. And so I went with him and a few other friends and, and watched it. Thought it was pretty good, um, mm-hmm. even at the two hour and 40 minute version. But yeah, 30 years later, I just had like snippets right. of memory of the movie. So watching this again, especially in the first half, a couple of things would like reemerge in my brain. Like, oh, I kind of remember this, but this doesn't feel familiar. And this clearly, the the film is such a like, it's very like lackadaisical. Like it 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 is. It's it's wandering. Yeah, wandering. Yeah, Yeah. it's it wanders. It meanders. It yeah, and it's globe trotting. Yeah, and there's a lot of stuff in that that you can just tell from just from a filmmaking standpoint that well, if something had to go, it's this. Right. Absolutely. And yeah. you knew it was just like yeah, probably isn't the greatest scene. It's got to go. Um, but you kind of enjoy it, and I do remember that aspect of the movie from the first time the sort of globe trotting trying to get somewhere trying to get yeah. to australia and then the australia part was a lot more fuzzy for me well it's it's a lot shorter and you know one of the things i like in the long cut is that scene in australia when they play days yes in the shorter version they don't play the entire song I, I knew enough when I finally watched the second half which is what I'm very familiar with now because I just watched it is that whatever my memory served before almost none of this except for little bits were left in the film just probably enough to make the story yeah um, one of the things and I don't know maybe you remember this because you, you're more familiar with the movie or not I couldn't remember how the resolution of the uh, it's another MacGuffin, right? The uh, yeah. the 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 nuclear satellite, the nuclear satellite, yeah, which did seem a little ridiculous, just because what we know about you know, yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's just supposed to be an easy metaphor, kind of. But in the in the original shortcut, are we do we have a conclusion as to what happened to the planet? No, we don't, right? I don't think so. It's no. kind of left as like whereas. In this film, and this is what I kind of liked, the second half of the movie is a little bit more of a sci-fi movie. Yes. Oh, definitely it is. Yeah. And I enjoyed that. Even though it's a very slow and much different pace, it's almost like if they could have done it originally like as in two films. Right. And I feel like the point where the first film should have ended was when they were on the airplane and the imp happens and all electricity shuts off. Right. And that they land yeah. and then you're like, well, what's going to happen next? And then they could have had the second film with them in Australia because it's, right. it's such a different tone that I think it would have been an interesting second movie to see. Well, and the Australia stuff is like two hours in this cut, right? Yeah, it's a good solid two hours. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like 30 minutes in the original cut. Yeah. And so while it's a very slow paced I found that part of the film very fascinating. Yeah. Um, and just because what I liked about the sci-fi thing, like the, the conclusion of this technology that he was going around, running around. That you can record your dreams with. Yeah. Yeah. Is that the technology isn't perfect. Right. Um, they're working it out and it's not that sturdy. And I think that the whole history of what we know about technology from the real 1999 on to now and the advancements yeah. that were made, uh, I think gives most people a perspective of how technology evolves in a way that we really weren't as uh, familiar with when it came to computers. And, yeah, that's a good point. And so watching this is very fascinating saying, yeah, you know, like, A, you can see what the dangers could be, but you also see how 
over the years, like how, like you can imagine the technology today would be that you'd fully be able to see dreams in a sense. Right, right, if right. If that technology yes, exactly. could evolve. Yeah. Um, and then there, it was just these weird snapshots. But I also feel that was a little bit of a fault of the film in that I understand how people can can get very down a rabbit hole and get drug obsessed with uh, computer technology, right. as we know with our phones. But I didn't quite buy the dramatic lost in their souls kind of thing that uh william hurt and she experienced yeah where where they get so obsessed with their own dreams yeah but i appreciated it yeah um so i really liked that and i did i liked having five hours to just kind of hang out with these characters well that's exactly why i like the long cut is because you feel like you're just hanging out and spending time with these characters and so it ends up for me being more of an experience almost yeah like some of those characters that were in the, the short version and they kind of just kind of really they don't they're not in it for that much and here they become a kind of pals like the bank robber guys yes and yes the guy was hunt hot hired to hunt them down and he's hanging out there and yeah the, yeah he comes to australia that guy love that guy yeah yeah, so it's, I mean, I don't think it's a, uh, you know, like the greatest masterpiece ever made, but there's something really likable about it. And and I like spending time with those characters. And, and I totally agree. The sci-fi concept is cool. Now, with the way we absorb content yeah. on, at home with, uh, you know, binging and stuff, something like this works a lot better. Interesting. Yeah, because you can watch it is it is sort of like in chunks, little chapters without yes. it being in chapters. But you can watch this movie at like break it up into like a five part series in a sense. Right, you could watch an hour uh, hour a day. Yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, he had so he had so much footage. All right, I think he has like two hundred hours worth of footage that <laughs> that he could have created like a ten part series, and I'd be interested in it. Yeah, and then there's things like when she goes to China, I think. Yeah, and they ended up using like old, like weird little like digital cameras to just capture. Um, well, they they just sent her to China and with a video camera. Well, they didn't have any money. They I know have money, so it's like <laughs> here's that. Which, by the way, it's really noticeable in the Australia part. The rich, saturated cinematography by Robbie Muller, yeah, uh, is really good. But so there's like it's a weird, it's a mixed bag. It's definitely like this is something that I guess. You know, they don't let this happen too much anymore because of the expense. And <laughs> right. The studio was like, they used to like take visionary directors like a Vim Vendors and say, well, you have this idea. Okay, we'll give you money and you'll find your movie. Right. But when you do that, <laughs> the guy just keeps shooting and shooting and he can't find his movie. <laughs> and this five hour film somewhat feels like it. It's like if he could have taken this film and then used it to really think about what a film should be and then reshoot it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, you're right. It does feel like a, like a, an early draft in a way. It, it, and it, like we said, it meanders, it's slow at times. It doesn't really have a solid plot direction. Well, you know, it's also interesting is when I first saw the movie, I probably recognized him from different films is uh, Sam Neill, yes. uh, who's kind of the, I don't know how much of a narrator is in the short version, but in the long version, he's, he narrates it. Yes. And he's an author and you really get a better understanding of his relationship with her yes. in the long version. But at the time he hadn't broken big in Hollywood. Right, and right, right. People might recognize him from some weird eighties stuff. And then the first time I really recognized Sam Neill was uh the movie with Nicole Kidman and they're on the boat. Oh, uh, what is that called? Red something? 
No. You know what I mean? And then Billy Zane is the, like the psycho on the boat. Yeah, that's a good movie. Yeah, yeah, very intense. It's like Philip Noyce directed it. Philip Noyce directed it, yeah. Yeah, um, so he was the husband. <laughs> we remember everything but the title. <laughs> no, like Deadcom. Deadcom, that's it. Uh, so that's the first time I remembered him. But then around the same time, uh, well, shortly after this film, Until the End of the World, he made this film called Sirens, uh, another Australian film. Yes, with, uh, what's her name? The supermodel. The, yes, yes. Elle McPherson's in it. Elle McPherson's Portia de Rossi's in it. Hugh Grant's yeah. in it. So he's in that. And then, of course, in 93, he's in the piano, but 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 he makes a big in the summer with Jurassic Park. Right. Um, but then in the 80s, early 80s, he played uh, the grown-up Damien in Damien Omen 3, The Final Conflict. Oh, <laughs> yes. okay. I didn't realize that. And then young Sam Neill is this husband in the most crazy, bizarre movie that you also made me watch. <laughs> and I finally got to see it with Isabella Johnny, which was the, the possession. possession. That oh. movie is insane. I don't know if we can really talk about it now, but I will tell you this because I haven't got a chance to tell you this since, since I saw this film like about a, like two months ago yeah. is that this music at the beginning of the film, uh-huh. right? So my wife and I are watching this <laughs> and we see Sam Neill, right? And so we started to create a song based on the music and it was great. We were going, Young Sam Neill, Young Sam Neill, Young Sam Neill, Young Sam Neill. <laughs> so this one is like early 90s Sam Neill, early 90s Sam Neill. So now whenever I see Sam Neill in anything, I can't help but think of Possession. <laughs> And his <laughs> creepiness in that movie and, and the his, music. And, and his bizarre performance. And, oh, yeah, that movie is Oh, just- his bizarre performance. I mean, Isabella Johnny, uh, supposedly, she almost, like, had a nervous breakdown shooting that scene in the subway. And- I was just going to say, <laughs> that scene is ins- is totally I crazy. How, I don't know how is. I don't know how as a person, right? Forget the acting part of it, that you can right. do what she did in that scene and, and just loses it. <laughs> what a weird it's such a bizarre movie Young it's, time it's, it's it's just it's an oddity and you know so did you end up liking until no. the end of the world oh, oh oh i thought you meant possession i'm like god no that movie's no horrible. no no possession is not a movie to like <laughs> no young sam neil um yeah no i liked until the end of the world i didn't love it uh yeah i just it's such an interesting thing and i think uh what's coincidental uh, about this and i always like to tie things in and, and we really won't you know get into it now we're close at the end of the program here but there's another uh film with a history of having to be chopped yeah uh, that's just made its way into a big director's cut oh the snyder cut <laughs> snyder cut uh justice yeah. league on hbo max and if you know me i'm not a big comic book movie guy i'm just not the i guess i'm not the big audience for this uh but you know i have hbo max so of course i'm gonna watch the snyder's cut and my wife she has not seen any of the schneider uh dc movies okay she barely likes the marvel ones um but she likes the wandavision so she kind of wants to go back and see some of the ones she didn't see but She's not seen The Man of Steel, and she hasn't seen Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice. Okay. She hasn't seen the Aquafish movie. I saw 15 minutes of that. And that's, I think, I think I made it to 20, but I wasn't paying attention to half of those. It was oh, the I, worst. Oh, I, I couldn't. It was so hard to pay attention. I, I, I just, I'm not a fan of uh, that actor. 
No, uh, but my wife is a fan of Jason Momoa, so let's be careful what we say there. Okay, um, I don't, I'm just—I'm I'm not going to rip him apart. He just—he uh, just doesn't do it for me. Of course, she's seen the Wonder Woman, and we saw the the, the abysmal Wonder Woman '84. Right. Uh, so so far, the way that they've treated these DC movies, uh, shaky, shaky, shaky. I don't know why I'd even want to watch this Justice League because the original, which I only saw on cable, I thought was so bad. One of the worst superhero movies I've ever seen. It's a total disaster. It's just a mess. My my youngest and my wife were all intrigued. She liked the story about about how Zack Snyder was in the middle of making Justice right. League, and then him and his wife lost their their daughter who committed suicide, and he he tried to soldier through, but he just he wasn't willing to just fight all those awful studio battles yeah. when he was dealing with all that, and he just had to walk away. And then they gave it to, unfortunately, that Josh Whedon guy. Is that the best they could have? I mean, apparently they thought. Well, they thought they you know they. Thought avengers and all that and right and then they knew he could probably come in and like manage maybe but then what he did was he just basically i think that the studio had ideas of what they wanted and they thought let's mm. do it the josh whedon way and whatever the result because I, I i couldn't tell you what was new or whatever they, it was horrible they reshot a bunch of stuff, I think. Well, so it's a combination of he decided as in a rewriting, I'm going to reshoot a whole bunch of things to make it work with what I want. And Josh, uh, I mean, Zack Snyder had envisioned the film for IMAX theaters. Right. With right. a big square IMAX, like for full screen IMAX effect. So the way he was composing stuff was a certain was way. for that aspect ratio and i yeah. guess in order to keep the footage of whatever not only did they recolor it to more of a a, a, a weed in approved palette but they also had to like kind of crop the images in a way that would fit oh wow yeah okay so i guess that's why people might have noticed just scenes just looked weird and didn't look like they were filmed well so anyways uh you know for some reason fans were crying i want the snyder cut and, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know whatever maybe hey why not they got a they got uh, hbo max now we can get a longer cut uh, snyder's back they put another 70 million dollars into it yeah i mean fixing up effects doing whatever so we were in so my wife was very intrigued by that and said yeah let's watch it and we'll watch it with my youngest and since it is in chapters um which yeah. is interesting you brought that up about the other one that we thought well we could watch this in, you know in some chunks and so we start watching this thing and I got to tell you, I couldn't remember any of the other movie. <laughs> I did very bit. There was like a couple of scenes here yeah, and there. I, I can't remember much of yeah. it. Yeah. So, I mean, it's really hard like with, well, with four hours. And I think, I think out of those four hours, only about an hour's worth of footage would have been even in the Justice League movie. Oh, interesting. Okay. So imagine sprinkling that through a four hour film. It's very hard to say, well, what was even in the thing? Plus, right. it's in this Snyder-approved uh, aspect ratio, which is so different that it makes the f scenes, even if you saw them, different. Right. It makes them totally different. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, settling in and, you know, after watching this first chapter, I was like surprised. I was like, you know, I kind of like it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm shocked that you kind of like. I know it. I was too, uh, but but partly I was taken in by this uh, aspect ratio. If you have a nice big TV like myself, uh, 
the the square ratio it really is very powerful. Yeah. Um, okay. So so you're more engaged, and you know it, it feels very Snydery with all that weird slow motion stuff, and it's kind of yeah. cool. <laughs> I gotta say, so it, it felt cool, right? So we're like, okay. And then the second day, we like watched some more, and then we watched a lot more on the third day, and then we had just the last half hour, which is like a like a you know like a wrap up, like what right. prologue or something. Epilogue. Epilogue. Thank you. It, it's an epilogue. Uh, so we save the epilogue for the last day. I'm not going to give you full scoop and, and certainly no spoilers. Right. Because I couldn't even tell you what happened in the first movie. But, it, <laughs> you know, it's essentially, I guess, the same story, but some parts are different, what have you. Um, and it is a lot like this until the end of the world where there's just stuff that, yeah, probably could have been cut out. It just doesn't necessarily as a movie need to but be But you're there. kind of spending time in the world. and Yeah. And so you're getting more you got a little bit more invested in whatever the stupid story they were telling right right because there's more character development and yeah, yeah. and because you're watching it in parts on tv it, that doesn't you know you're not like oh my god when's this gonna be over so i kind of enjoyed that even though like if we were just going to go through it straight i could just tell you a million reasons why you know ugh. right the biggest problem though which kind of like i i still kind of give it a recommendation if you're going to watch it on hbo max but this epilogue the it, epilogue it kind of almost undid everything that i was enjoying about the movie what really in that it just shows you that the snyder doesn't know when to quit it's like it's just enough like let us have this this movie since there isn't necessarily going to be any others maybe it's a hope Right, it was like this right. hope that they're gonna maybe continue, and maybe HBO is gonna get so much, uh, you know, viewership over this that they'll greenlight something else. But it just reminded me that the the villains in this story and any of these other characters, other than people you know, are just not that good in the DC world. Right. So, like, like in Marvel movies, right? I still am convinced that there's only a small segment of people that actually ever read the comics. I have not read the comics. Right. So I feel that most people who consider themselves fanboys or fangirls or fans, they like to act like they know all about all these Marvel things. And <laughs> Well, there are some people who do. I know some people who do. Yeah, but then when you read like if you read online entertainment things, they all they all are clearly paid money to promote whatever Marvel and they talk as if they know about all these characters and you know they don't. But so, in, uh, I'm just saying, I know a cu- couple of comic book but people. But I'm saying the masses. I agree with you on the masses. But I feel like in Marvel, there's a pretend movement where they seem to pretend <laughs> right. like they know all this stuff. But in Marvel, they, they've they done a great job of, of getting you invested with like all the characters you do know and yeah. then introducing these side people in a way that you can get on board. And I think that just overall, the heroes in the Marvel movies and even the villains, they're just more recognizable and you get it. Yeah. Now you get over to the DC world, right? And I don't, I don't know who the f some of these supposed villains are, and I guarantee you, no one else does either. And so the villains in this movie, this uh, Steppenwolf and this Dark Side and this other side guy or whatever, they a look the same, and I don't even know, and like I don't know who these are. They just look like big CG monsters, so they're just not that engaging, you know. Yeah. And they got instead of uh, instead of power stones or rings, they got mother boxes. The, they got mother boxes. <laughs> it's like, but you really realize pretty quick. It's not that this movie was ripping off the, all the things that we saw in twenty movies of Marvel. It's that comics are basically the same. It's a different brand, but it's the same shit. The thing is, like, if you do read the comics, 
Yeah. Which I which I don't, but I've talked to people about it. There's some really interesting, weird, strange stuff going on in terms of how they play with their own cliches and deconstruct their stories. No, they didn't do any of that in this movie. <laughs> well, that's my point, is that it's happening in the comics, but it's not happening in any of the movies, Marvel or DC. Yeah, well, that's so. This is why I think everyone loves Batman, and why that's sort of the anomaly when they do Batman is that what I like about the Batman, and I never thought about DC Marvel. I just thought about right. Batman. Is that Batman? He doesn't have super powers, and neither do the villains that he fights. They're all like crime people with crazy, you know, personalities and stuff. But they're not. They're not from another planet. Yeah, it's very well, and that's the thing. Like Batman is uh, a really psychological character in part because he doesn't have superpowers. Yeah, so like, so that means whenever he has to battle something, it's not like um, battling for the end of the world kind of thing. Right, right. It's to save the city. It's a little save the city, scale. right? Yeah. Save a bank. I don't know. Um, you know, save the water supply, but. Then, then you mix him in with all of these super, super power people, and right. it's an end of the entire world struggle, and <laughs> it just, I don't know, it doesn't work. And so, uh, yet it's just done better in this version than that shit that we got in 2017. I may have to check it out. Oh, I'm I mean, I, I think it's interesting, but again, I can't, I can't divorce myself entirely from the fact that the story ultimately, eh. And then there's like, they did, you know, and this is a Snyder problem because it started with the Man of Steel. They've made a really crappy Superman. Right. He's kind of always not, he's not interesting. Doesn't he's always lot, depressed. He's depressed or he's just angry or he's like possibly a villain. So, uh, you know, it's just, eh. So that's, uh, at least he doesn't have that fake mouth to cover up the mustache that they had to remove. That's, what? Well, you know the story, right? So when Josh Whedon wanted to do all these redos, uh, Superman, the actor, Henry Cavill, he was shooting the Mission Impossible movie. Oh. Well, he has a mustache in that movie. And th when he had some time off, they're like, well, go ahead. You can do the reshoots, but uh, you're contractually obligated with that mustache and you're not shaving <laughs> it off and putting a fake one on. You're keeping it. So they had, they're like, oh, well, we could CGI it. But they instead just took somebody else's mouth in a sense and they slapped it on. It's the worst. You haven't, you gotta, you gotta look at it. It's the worst. It's so I creepy. had no idea. Wow. Yeah. So any of these, there's a reshoots thing where like Superman, I think it's to show that he's like a nicer guy or something. He, he says something to some kids. It's not in the, it's not in the uh, Snyder cut, but okay. it, it looks so creepy like it's creepier than anything in the movie <laughs> it's so wow. creepy yeah so i mean luckily that stuff's done uh they redid like with cgi they redid the steppenwolf character so he looks okay. a little bit more um but the things that i liked about it again was the just the it's a visually it's a stunning movie whereas that was the worst part about the other justice league didn't even wasn't even visually stunning right uh, so some of the special effects were really cool. Like the Flash kid, uh, he kind of is annoying, but he at least has some energy. I mean, the the, the cyborg character, another worst character. Oh right? yeah, I've, I've, uh, one review I read sort of singled him out as being a, 
uninteresting character. He's uninteresting, but he's also so joyless. Like, it's just, mm. ugh. And so it's like you have a joyless, you know, you know when Batman is is, is fun, more fun than, than Cyborg. <laughs> you know. And Batman is, Batman is more uh, upbeat than Superman. I think you got a problem. And then Aquaman, yeah, he's there for the yucks, and he's not, Momo was not that great an actor, but he was almost like, he seems to at least be like, I know, this is ridiculous, and they're paying me, so whatever. That's right. his attitude in the movie, and so that is kind of fun, but you kind of wonder, isn't Aquaman all about the water? What's he doing above land? What, <laughs> what's he doing in this movie? Like, maybe they should have picked somebody else who went for an, uh, for an above water journey um, than Aquaman, because it just doesn't make sense. And, uh, you know, Wonder Woman, she's she's better in this movie and gets to do more than she ever does in that wonder woman 84 crop wait is the joker in this movie i don't want to give away what's going on but all i can say is he's part of this epilogue thing okay because i saw a quote where Zack snyder said i figured if this is going to be the last dc movie i make i need to get the joker in it yeah, I mean, it's it, there's this thing that just kind of hinges on maybe a dream, maybe a premonition. It's kind of set up what could possibly happen. And so he's in it. And of course, it's Jared Leto, who's terrible as the Joker. It's terrible as the Joker. And so he gets to be terrible in this for this thing. And it's just all unnecessary. And it's just, it's a bridge too far. It's unnecessary. I mean, that's what was so insane to me about the Snyder quote is that he's doing it because it's his last DC movie. No, you do something like that because it's in the interest of making a good movie, not like to satisfy your own ego. It's just, it seemed so bizarre. Like, I'm just going to throw this in because I may not get a chance to do it another time. Well, there's these other scenes with this character called the the Martian Manhunter. Which oh, yeah. Yeah. I like I, that character. Oh, you do? Well, see, you have to know it because... When he's in this film, you're, you're, if you don't know anything about you're like, what's this guy and why? Okay. Like, it's a lot of that, unfortunately. Um, so like I said, if he had not done this epilogue thing and maybe just found a way to like conclude the characters like right. a la Return of the King style, that would have been fine. But he kind of just went a bridge too far with this epilogue, in my opinion. And so- is it trying to set stuff up for another movie? Well, I think it's one of these things. It, it, there should be no other reason for him doing this other than to say, come on, guys, look at the Schneider cut. People want it. You want to know? You want another one? Oh, come man. on. <laughs> come on. Give me a chance. Don't make me make the Fountainhead. <sighs> Don't make me make that the next movie. <laughs> I like the King Vidor version. <laughs> um, which again for listeners out there who don't know is that uh, Snyder who uh, swears he's not a libertarian he loves Ayn Rand's the Fountainhead, the Fountainhead. Uh, and he really wants to and he and he somehow he, he connects the whole story about it like into that world in a weird way and there's even this like little Easter egg where there's a newspaper that has a headline that's like out of the Fountainhead kind of thing and he <laughs> wants to make that his next movie I don't know why um, but uh, you know, we'll see if that's there. well. I think that um, some artist and creative people uh, connect with the Fountainhead because it's in part about having artistic integrity. Well, I think that's his battle right against the studio. Exactly, um, and so he sees himself as Howard Rourke. Um, yeah. So, in, but in this movie version that he might make, the Howard Rourke will have like CGI abs. Right. And he'll be able to lift huge steel bars, put together the buildings himself. Well, there is that scene when, when Gary Cooper's working in the quarry. And that's what I'm thinking about the quarry scene. And so, this guy looks 
of like you know being all those weird colors and uh, the super apps. <laughs> i mean yeah anyhow i like the king, scene. I, I like the king vador version i think it's uh beautifully made uh, and, and turgid and over the top yeah so who knows but uh I, you know i mean look if they i, I just i don't even though I admired this cut as far as the visual style, right. he was the wrong person for them to launch a huge fa- franchise on DC because I think they were like, well, we'll be different from Marvel, so we'll even have a look right. and feel. But they were darker and like depressing, and it's just eh. Whereas the Marvel movies- I found know, the Man of Steel movie totally depressing. It was. And then it got even more depressing with Batman versus Superman. And uh, yes. So this one, again, I think it was the best of these DC things that I've seen. But, uh, you know, Marvel, I enjoyed WandaVision. That was kind of fun. Yeah, I want to I want to check that out. I know you yeah, I wish you would just cuz it would have been another fun thing to <laughs> We talk should about. wrap up. Yeah. Oh, you're like trying to get rid of me now. Yes. <laughs> we we promise you we'll never do an episode that's 45 minutes long. <laughs> It's going to always be longer. Um, But anyways, you know, it's a a hundredth episode. I don't know when we're going to get back on the mic. Uh, At some point we will, and uh, we'll we'll give you more stuff. Maybe we'll get another hundred episodes. (laughs) Yep. Keep listening. Yep. Oh, and before we go, I did want to throw out these other statistics. Yes. Over the two years, we have been downloaded in over 67 different countries. Nice. We have been downloaded in 49 of the 50 states. Which one are we missing? Alaska. What? I know. Oh, I we know. need to we need to do a marketing campaign. Let's get some billboards in Alaska. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, the Fortress of Solitude's probably there and then <laughs> Maybe in the Snyder Cut. And then uh, our most popular episode that we've ever done, which is I think is because con- conspiracy theorists and people have to like to unlock puzzles. We're looking for any nugget of info that they could is our Under the Silver Lake episode. Oh, Still interesting. Far and away is our most popular download, <laughs> uh, followed up by the uh, episode we did about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with Quentin Tarantino. Mm-hmm. And then our Midsommar episode. Oh, interesting. And then our Portrait of a Lady on Fire episode with Carrie. Okay. And then rounding up the top five was our Craig Zoller episode. Really? Those are the five. Fascinating. (laughs) Fascinating. I know. So I don't know what that means, but I just thought I would give those nuggets out. uh, (laughs) Anyways, you know, all our episodes are online, all 100. You can find them at uh, stuffweseen.com. So check that out if you want to go back to the beginnings when the audio wasn't so great. <laughs> it was not great, those first 10 episodes. Yeah, well, even even longer than that. I mean, it took a while. It was a total journey to learn how to get the sound. That's right. true. It, it took us a while. To, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, had, we, you know, we started out humbly, and uh, here we are with better mics and uh, better abilities to uh, get that recorded. So anyways, uh, we look forward to bringing you more episodes, uh, but uh, you can always send us uh, a note at feedback at at stuffweseen.com um, or, you know, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, all that stuff. All right. Uh, that's it for me and goodbye to you. Bye-bye. And bye to you, but not bye, bye, James. But not forever, just for now. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And if you get access to the vaccine, people go and take it. Get, get your, vaccinated. Get your shot. Bye. Young time, Bill. Long time bill. Long time bill. Long time bill.